Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Fanzine Podcast. Just before we get started with the show, this is your host, Tony Fletcher. I want to invite you to sign up for the weekly newsletter over at tonyfletcher.substack.com. It'll give you updates on this podcast, my other podcast, all forms of recommendations with a midweek update, a long-form weekend read. Sign up is absolutely free. There are interview archives, uh, additional podcast features, and you will be able to to see uh, more of the fanzines that uh, we're talking about on this show. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. Thanks again. Now on with the pod. It's the fanzine. Fanzine. Podcast. I mean, the thing about a fanzine was holding it in your hand, right? and looking at the way it had been put together and the punk way it had been put together, quite, quite frankly. And it had a staple in it, you know, and, and that was, that is a fanzine, right? Welcome everybody to the Fanzine Podcast, episode number 21. And maybe it's appropriate as we turn over like a new set of digits that we are finally, finally, finally getting across the Atlantic. And I have with me two people that I, I will confess I know reasonably well, and they are both um, titans uh, and possibly legends. <laughs> um, minor legends, major legends, it depends how you view the zine culture. I have with me uh, Ira Robbins and Jack Rabbit, and I'm going to invite them just to start off by telling us, uh, for those who don't know, the name of the, the zine, the magazine, that they have carried kind of through their lives. And, um, and we will go from there. Uh, Ira, I think, um, I think as you are the, the by, by far predated Jack, why don't you go first? Yeah, I'm the, I'm the elder statesman here. Um, Ira Robbins, Trouser Press Magazine, 1974 to in some form the present. And I'm Jack Rabbit. I've been doing a magazine called The Big Takeover since May of 1980, and uh, we have an issue every six months all that time. That is pretty phenomenal. That you know, it was only a couple of episodes ago. Somebody said uh, I had somebody on who said, "Am I the first person who's actually publishing at the moment?" And now I've got two people who've been publishing for over 40 years in one one <laughs> way or another. It's uh, it's pretty remarkable. Um, I said I do know you both. Uh, I've lived, I did live in New York City for many, many years. I don't have to ask if you know each other because just before we came on air and I pressed record, you told me you both uh, you keep running into each other in the supermarket. Okay, which supermarket? Where do you both live? Park Slope, down Brooklyn. <laughs> which which supermarket? Steve C Town. <laughs> so Eves of Ninth Street. <laughs> So now you're going to make me really homesick for my old area of Park Slope. I used to live down there. I used to run into Jack. I would, Ira, you weren't living there at the time, were you? Were you just hiding no. from me? Uh, we were in Carroll Gardens. Okay, that's right. You were in Carroll Gardens. And Jack, I would run into you at times. Yeah, we all have very much New York City connections. So clearly we're going to be talking some form of New York City, uh, some form of New York City fanzine. And um, I'm going to save, um, I always end up talking about like how we printed our, our, our zines and how many we sold and where we sold them and the headaches of printing. But I really want to, because because we're jumping across 
the pond and because we're we're you know this is opening up a whole new area which i'm really excited about because i'm really expanding the coverage now now that i've done the kind of like mainstay my home sort of home area um but i really wanted to kind of like get into uh you know talking more about the music and the scenes and then into our zines and so uh, a little bit of all of that ira for you in the mid 1970s 1974 you start this 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 thing off the word fanzine was clearly around because you 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 actually used it in the first sentence of your first page in a magazine slash fanzine and i don't know if you remember the quote i can read it for you here but it wasn't actually just called trouser press was it you want to give it its full title and explain where trouser press came from and why that would have been amusing to your american readers yes um trouser press was uh, a song by the bonzo dog band and um, we added to that transoceanic for several reasons. Uh, we saw ourselves as an Anglophile magazine, and, and so we wanted to get that context, context into there. Um, but we also wanted to get a bunch of puns in there. So the first one was that T-O-T-P, our initials, were the initials of Top of the Pops, which was a TV show that I'm sure none of us had ever seen, but we all fantasized about. Um, <laughs> it was also the, the name of a related kink song. Um, yeah. And there was a vague reference to something Pete Townsend had a dog named Towser or Tra and, and yeah. it, there was a, a vague who connection. Um, so those were all the reasons we called it transoceanic trouser press. That lasted a while, but it became really unwieldy in terms of designing covers. It was just impossible to get all those words across a, an eight and a half inch page. So you, you shortened it in time to trouser press. I realized why that might have been uh, slightly, I mean, it's funny, Ira, it's taken me all these years. Uh, one of the words I really struggle with, with having to speak two versions of the same language is pants versus trousers. And the uh -huh. fact that Americans don't say trousers. So in fact, you really hung your, 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 your kind of mast out, didn't you? By calling yourself trouser press. Because did you have people say, well, what are trousers? Or, or was your audience oh, more intellectual than that? No, everyone in America has used the word trousers. It just may not be the first choice of, of description of things you put on your legs, but trousers was not an unknown word. It wasn't like, you know, like lift or, or uh, you know, <laughs> or, or, or aluminium. It's knackered. Knackered. Knackered is a good word. It is, it is always just, oh my God, it's ridiculous. How many, how many different words? All right. So what did the word fanzine mean to you at, at that point? You know, on the last episode I did, just kind of set myself up for expanding the, the coverage here. We talked about the very, 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 very first fanzines coming from the States. The very first one that called itself that they were sci-fi fanzines. What did the word mean to you, Ira, when you, um, when you started out? And, and I mean, the words you wrote in that first issue were, um, the Transoceanic Trouser Press will hopefully be the first consumer-oriented international rock fanzine. It was probably a little bit uh, self-important, but no, we were reading um, Rock Marketplace, which was Alan Betrock's magazine in New York, and um, uh, the, the New Haven Rock Press had started, John Tivens magazine, and um, Bomp, of course. And then we, we also knew about like Zigzag from England, you know, and they all felt to us like you know, we sort of drew a mental distinction between, you know, the, the, the magazines we'd grown up on, 16 Hit Parader, you know, Time Newsweek, things like that, that seemed to be, you know, big shot professional organizations. And then the ones that had some 
in some sense kind of felt like they were coming out of somebody's living room, you know, or bedroom. Um, I don't know that we gave it a lot of thought. It was just a word that was around, you know, I mean, we, we read fanzines and, you know, we decided to publish one. Okay. How did you look on the New York music scene at the time? Um, I mean, you call it, you know, uh, transoceanic it was clearly and you use that word international hoping that the, the, the inter was in parentheses brackets but you were hoping to get that kind of uh, that thing across but you're starting a zine in 1974 which historically is not looked at as the sort of golden days of underground rock and roll were you part of that um, Mercer Arts uh, Club um, was Max's going were you were you seeing yourself as part of that at the time or by using the word rock were you seeing yourself more in that lineage you've already mentioned the who and the bonzos were you considering yourself more in that lineage um both we um I mean I was going to shows at CB's Max's I wasn't around for, I, I didn't go to Mercer I never went to Mercer um but uh I knew a kid from from summer camp um, from when I was 10 uh, who had a band called The Planets, Binky Phillips, who's a well-known mm. figure in Who Circles and other circles. And Binky had a band called The Planets. And in like 1973, they booked themselves a show at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. I mean, like a full-on, you know, 1,500-seat room that like this band that didn't have a deal, didn't have anything, they just played. And it just knocked me out to see that there was like, that someone I knew could actually get up on stage. Cause I mean, I'd been to rock concerts, but I'd never been to a rock concert by somebody that I was friends with. Um, and so that, that sort of like opened me up to the, to, to going to those kinds of shows. And then when, you know, bands started playing at CB's, you know, I went to see the Ramones. I saw the Ramones at performance studios with like 30 people. Um, and, you know, I went to, went to a lot of shows at, at CB's and Max's. Um, I wasn't a back room guy at Max's. I didn't hang out. I just went to shows. Um, but when we started Trouser Press, you know, our, our idea was to write about mostly historical and, you know, sort of do genealogical research and do discographies and things like that. We had a very kind of parochial view of what we were going to do. So, you know, it wasn't we didn't set out to like write about the New York scene. And in fact, the biggest mistake that we ever made was to really see ourselves as being so international that the New York scene was something we didn't feel we could cover fairly without kind of alienating readers in Oklahoma who couldn't possibly hear the bands that didn't have records and were only playing in the New York area. Yeah, I actually noticed that um, the all 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 the issues, all ninety six of them, are online available for download uh, completely, as far as I know, in your creation of the public domain. I.e., it's Trouser Press, whatever dot com. I'll make sure the link is correct, but. Um, I think around issue 12, you actually acknowledge that there's a New York rock scene happening and, and you need to write about it. Yeah, we call it, we did a column called New York Notes and we like did like a short feature on one or two or three bands every month, um, every issue, it wasn't every month, but because um, we weren't the monthly then. But, you know, we did it. It wasn't that we didn't know what was going on because we were going to those shows all the time. I mean, we were, you know, hanging out with bands and going to CVs and stuff. And, and it was a real big part of our culture. We just didn't think that it was part of our editorial purview. So it was a conscious decision to treat those bands as like minor, you know, celebrities in our world. And in fact, we really assumed, and I, I could say this with all honesty, we really assumed those bands would never be known outside of New York. Blondie, <laughs> the Ramones, Talking Heads. Like, why would anybody, 
you know, it was it was such a local scene. It was such a small scene. I mean, there were maybe 150 or 200 people that went to shows in New York. So there was no belief that like the Miamis or the Mumps or, you know, or any of those bands were going to ever mean anything outside of our little world. There was there was no concept of that possibly happening. You know, New York had not had a very robust you know, feeder scene into the world of rock and roll. You know, there weren't a million bands that came from New York. The Young Rascals, you know, the Vagrants, you know, I mean, the soul bands, you know, but like it wasn't a big city for like turning, you know, sending bands into the the mainstream. Right. And so we didn't, there was no reason for us to assume that, you know, television was going to ever be a band that got on a record label. Like, why would you think that like that would be something that a record company would sign? There was no precedent for it. Right. So in the meantime, you're writing about uh, you know, in international rock bands that do have record deals. And I might I might double back on that, but I want I definitely want to bring Jack in. Let's 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 hone in on the year 1976. Important year. Um, I I'm never embarrassed about giving my age. I was uh, 12 in 1976. I turned 12. Uh, you must have been older than that, Ira, because you're like a couple of years into publishing. Uh, you don't have to be exact, but it, it might be cool to know because I want to know what Jack was as well and where he fitted into that scene. I was 22 I in 1976 and got married for the first time. <laughs> right. You got married young, man. Woo. Yeah, okay. indeed. Okay. While I, while I was getting married, I was a middle school eighth grader in a suburban uh, enclave at the tender age of 14. So I wasn't marrying anybody. <laughs> right. Well, so uh, you said suburban, Jack. Was it suburban New York? Yes. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey in a place called Summit, which is really a suburban family values place that didn't know what to do with punk rock when myself and eight or nine of my friends all got into it in 1977 and 78. We were like the alien invasion. Right. So 1976, when we're just talking about Iris sort of finally acknowledging at Trouser Press what's going on in New York City, you're still not, you're still not hip to that. You're, you know, you're, oh, no. I'm right. listening to my Beatle records I bought in the 60s. <laughs> well, at least you were buying them in the 60s. So, I mean, I know you both as just, in, what's the word, indefatigable? It's one of those words that's sometimes easier to write than to say music fans, <laughs> music nerds, music obsessives. <laughs> we do all have that in common. Uh, was that, I mean, for, for you, Jack, was that ingrained from the beginning, do you think? Well, I joined the Beatles fan club when I was six because they were still a band. Uh, I still have all the stuff they sent me from the New Jersey chapter. <laughs> run by Carol Applegate. Her name is all over him. And I was so young that I thought I had their real autographs as opposed to like a very primitive early Xerox version of them. Mm -hmm. And I'd show them to my friends in first grade and they'd say like, wow. <laughs> yeah. And actually, if you did have the Beatles autographs, it turned out they, they did quite a lot of them, didn't they? <laughs> Especially when they Xeroxed them, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... <clears throat> So when for you, Jack, did uh, did you start? You said 1977 you started coming in? Yeah, when I was 15, uh, a couple of my friends got into David Bowie, mm -hmm. and I resisted them for like a solid month, and they kept insisting, and I kept resisting. It's a long story, I won't tell you, but um, eventually I cried uncle, and Bowie turned out to be like the most amazing gateway drug in 1977 because of his associations with Iggy Pop and Lou Reed and the Mata Hoopo and all these other people. And, you know, talking about, uh, talking about Devo in every interview. And when you don't know anything and there's no internet, you really, really have to rely on the printed word. And uh, I, I'm one of like perhaps a hundred or pro probably a lot more of Irish children because 
Trouser Press was one that we just bought like the day it came out because it was the only magazine that would make it out to Summit that wasn't a fanzine, you know? So it was either that or Cream or Hit Parader, which was much more commercially minded almost entirely. And uh, and from there, we found these smaller publications like New York Rocker and uh, uh, Search and Destroy and uh, Slash and, uh, of course, the British Press. And bang, we learned a lot in a very short time. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. it was like a college class immersion. Yeah, and you um you you obviously became immersed in the New York scene, but before I just bring up to you starting the big takeover, um I'm 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 trying to balance the fact that there's a six year gap between your 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 scene, your zines, um and and yet you know you it's like a marriage, you know, when you marry apparently when you date somebody six years older or younger, you know, in forty years it won't seem such a distance and and it doesn't, but there is an enormous cultural gap between nineteen seventy four and nineteen eighty. And um, you know, you just hit on things like cream which was going, but also you mentioned New York Rocker. Um, I think Punk, the zine, the, the magazine Punk started in what, 75, 76? I think 75, yeah. Yeah. So um, Ira, when you started Trouser Press, um, it's not so much what was the competition, it's almost like what was the void? I mean, what was out there? Rolling Stone would have been out there. How important was Cream? Was Hit Parade sort of more like a, like a, a sort of the, the the sense of a fanzine in that it was it it wasn't critical. Like where were you where were you filling in that gap that you felt we really have to start a rock magazine in the mid nineteen seventies? We thought that there wasn't any coverage of British bands or the bands that we liked. You know, it was just it was really just sort of like inverted fandom. We wanted to see we wanted to write about the bands that we cared about that we weren't reading about. You know, I mean because our taste was somewhat under the radar. Um, I mean, the first issue was, you know, that we did was Rory Gallagher and the Pink Fairies. It also had a Beatles thing in it, but, you know, our, our idea for what we were interested in was very non-mainstream in that sense, and certainly non-mainstream in America. So the magazines that were out there were irrelevant to us. I mean, we actually called ourselves in a press release that we wrote, the alternative to the alternative alternatives, which was kind of stupid, but it, but it, it kind of expressed how far out of the mainstream we saw ourselves, you know, that we were just going to do what everybody didn't do. You know, I mean, we were reading Cream and Circus, you know, Hit Parader, yeah, wasn't a serious magazine at that point. And, you know, I mean, it, it had done some great stuff and I grew up on it, but, but, you know, by the seventies, it was not really where you went to find out about cool bands. Um, you know, we read the the British weeklies by surface subscription. They came folded up like like a roll of toilet paper, and it took like six to eight or ten weeks to arrive. So we would be reading about stuff like way after it happened, but it was it was like manna to us. We were just completely fascinated by everything that was in there. Um, and so, you know, that was really what we wanted to do is just to write about we 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 were filling a gap that we we ourselves imagined. Right. And when you say we, how big a team did you have? I mean, you, you're the name that's become associated with Trouser Press. But yeah, what, unfairly was so. OK, tell, there, tell me. There were three. There were three of us. Um, uh, the, the the core of the magazine was uh, me, Dave Schultz, who was a high school best friend of mine, still is um, not the high school part. Um, <laughs> and uh, Karen Rose, who had been the uh, editor of the Brooklyn College newspaper and had graduated. She was a couple of years older than us. And had become a. I was working in in an actual magazine in Manhattan, um, but like a not a music magazine. More, I think it was like a romance magazine or a, a, something like that. It was a straight job. Um, 
And the three of us met at a record nerd meeting in Yonkers and somehow came up with the idea that we should start a magazine. And so we did. Um, and uh, that was the three of us. And then we, once we started the magazine, um, we started attracting people. And within a couple of months, we had a, you know more people uh, on hand. Karen brought in a friend of hers. Um, Jim Green, who became a, a very important writer in the magazine, uh, found us. And Scott Eisler, who was later the editor of the magazine, was a clerk, was an assistant manager at a record store on 8th Street. And he he offered to carry the magazine in his store and ended up becoming the editor of the magazine. So um, th th that was our group, basically. Yeah, there's a lot of names that come through mastheads of, uh, of, of zines like Trouser Press, Big Takeover, and if I may, jamming as well, that go on to do things. Uh, and and I definitely saw that through tracking um, tracking mm -hmm. Trouser Press. Lots of people I didn't know of. I also didn't know until you mentioned right at the start of this that John Tivin, who uh, was really helpful for me with my Wilson Pickett and Eddie Floyd books, uh, I didn't know he had a zine of, of, of magazines. New Haven Rock Press. Yeah. New Haven Rock Press. Yep. Right. Did not did not know that. So shout out to John Tiven, who's been uh, been really, really helpful for me. So, you know, lots of people who end up, you know, John Tiven ended up as a producer and still a musician, but a producer as well. So so mm -hmm. we do we do see all of that. So, yeah, there's 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 the teamwork there. You know, you're mentioning about trying to just write about the bands that were flying under the radar. I mean, your first issue did have and this is what you and I bonded over, like Ira, you know, this one band we bonded over. It's it's the who. And mm -hmm. you know the who were on the cover of your first issue and your third issue, and I think a few more, a few more pretty hastily after that. Um, and I am fascinated because in my mind the who would have been about as big as it came, but was it? It seems like you were still looking at them, writing about them. The way I felt about them, even when in that year, 1976, I went to see them at Charlton, like, you know, 80 to 100,000 people. We never knew the count because there were so many counterfeits that somehow they were still rebels. Um, how, how did we get to that when the band was so big? Well, when I first started, when Dave and I first started following The Who, well, I started, I mean, we, we, we bonded over The Who in high school, but when I first started following The Who in 66, they were unknown in America. You know, I mean, they were... You know, they only had one hit single in the 60s, and that was Happy Jack in America. You know, so for a band that was, you know, as big as you could be in England, they were seen in America as like reprobates who broke guitars and, you know, smashed up hotel rooms. And they were unliked in America, and they certainly didn't get a lot of airplay. Um, you know, we we discovered them and and became fanatics. Um, and, you know, long before Tommy kind of made them more of a household name. Um, it was just a strange, I mean, I guess I kept that, that we, we kept that, that thought about them was that they weren't, uh, public property as much as other bands, you know what I mean? Like the Rolling Stones, you know, they were always like the biggest thing in the world, but the who weren't always the biggest thing in the world. I mean, I saw the who at the Fillmore three times, yeah. you know? So, I mean, there's, it's a 2,500 seater. So like, that's a band that, you know, was playing bigger shows, you know, elsewhere, but uh, you know, I, I, I take your point. I mean, I think we did kind of see them as our band. I mean, and, and there was a whole, we went through a whole like crisis when they stopped being our band, you know? I mean, I sent the first issue to Townsend and he wrote me back a long letter, mm -hmm. which was, you know, like, like mind boggling to me, you know I mean? Like, like I had done something that had made my all time hero of music respond to me seriously. It was incredible. You know, and then uh, like that spring, that that's June when they played the Four Nights at the Garden, seventy four. 
we followed Townsend out of the, 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 the this horrible press party that, that occurred uh, at the, the city center and uh, or, or what, what became Hammerstein. And um, he strode out of the out of the party after like five minutes after walking into it and started walking up Eighth Avenue, which in 1974, if you didn't know, was an absolute sewer of yeah. like crime and, you know, and, and like really scary people. Um, hookers up and down the street and a lot of drugs being sold. And he was walking by himself in like this, you know, white suit, <laughs> being, you know, and we didn't know whether he knew where he was going or who, what, what, what the city held for him. So me and three or four high school friends followed him for like close to 20 blocks, just about 10 feet behind, just as kind of like a cortege to make sure that if any if any bother hit him, that we would be there to protect him. And and we got to 57th Street, and one of my friends, for some reason, like broke ranks and grabbed him by the arm. And Townsend whirled around. He knew we were there the whole time. He yeah. whirled around and said, Fuck off the liar. And we just froze in our tracks, stopped cold, and he went on. He was staying at the at the Pierre, which is like two blocks from there. So we figured it was cool. And we let him go. <laughs> I guess he, uh, you know, the Who always that's that's probably some evidence. The Who always had their their street smarts um, in the sense that Pete could come out of like a major press conference. I know exactly where you're talking about walking from up Eighth Avenue from Thirty Fourth Street past um, Times Square. Um, yeah. uh, I arrived in the late eighties, and it was still whatever you described it as, and dangerous and cesspool and all of that. And then carrying on going up till he got to his posh hotel. I mean, on that right. note, and I, I do think the world divides into sort of Who fans and Stones fans. But today, when we're recording this, is Keith Richards' eightieth birthday, and I just revisited an interview I did with Keith uh, for Rapido TV back in nineteen eighty nine. He hosted me as his, his triplex on Fourth and Broadway, and he was you know. Uh, as as his reputation declares the most down-to-earth fun gracious enthusiastic hard drinking host that uh that you would imagine so i think keith keith also has his street smarts but uh i i i, I know what you're getting at that for me the who always felt like they were on the other side however big they got they were on the other side jack we have left you out for a lot for a lot of this i don't oh, i'm enjoying this I've, <laughs> <Keep going. laughs> I've i've actually never really discussed the who with you because we've discussed so many other more modern british bands but oh, i was fascinated jack you sent me the early big takeovers and you see, because I've only really known you since the late 80s, which, um, you know, we were just getting, I mean, you know, that the, the Anglophilia was big, bigger then than ever in many, many ways. Um, I did not know that you started the big takeover as a one-sheeter for a New York hardcore group. Why don't you take us through this? Tell us when, how, and why that band, and what became of that band? Uh, well, it's not that great a story these days, but... I, I had no ambitions to be a writer or a journalist or anything. Never occurred to me. But uh, what I really wanted to be was in a drummer in a band. And uh, one of the pinnacles of being an even worse when we finally formed in 1980s, uh, our second year of existence, we got a review in Trouser Press and New York Rocker and, you know, uh, Sounds. I was like, I couldn't believe my name was in these magazines, for starters, because I'd been reading them. But as a result of reading those magazines, when my friend said, you know, uh, I want to start a fanzine and I want you to help with me because I'd helped him with two reviews in our 
Summit High School newspaper for Elvis Costello and the Buzzcocks, right? In 1979. And um, I said, okay, I'll help you. What what fantasy do you want to do? And he said, I want to do one about David Johansson. And I said, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> he doesn't need any help. <laughs> he's, you know, he's got hits on the radio doing animals medleys. You know, why would you do that? Why don't you write about those bands in New York that we love that no one is writing about, even these magazines that we like so much? He said, yeah, that's a better idea. So we were friends with a band called The Stimulators. We went to see them a couple of times every month because they were always playing. And uh, through them, we got to know the Bad Brains in 1979 and the Mad, who were absolutely incredible around the same time. Sorry, what was the third act you mentioned, Jack? It cut for a second. Uh, it was Stimulators, Bad Brains, and Mad were our three favorite local bands. Okay, Mad. The Mad, yes. The and Mad, it, okay. Well, one of their guitar players ended up in the cramps for a while. All right. Other than that, they're that's about the only footnote people remember them, but they had two extraordinary singles and an extraordinary uh, presentation because they did films and uh, people would dress up in like uh, what you would look like if you had no skin you know? <laughs> <laughs> and they'd dance around the stage. They were really quite a remarkable band. So that, that was our idea. Our idea is that Trouser Press and New York Rocker in particular were doing a great job covering a lot of the cooler, better recognized bands but we had these other bands that we were friends with and we liked a lot and they could use some help. And so we did one page and there was never an idea we'd ever do a second one. Yeah, I mean, it's just like a one page, like broadsheet sort of yeah, the we simulators, simulators are the best band in the, on earth. Go see them. Send us a stamp address envelope for more info. I was 18 years and two months old still in high school. I mean, that was my idea of a fanzine. We couldn't afford to do anything better or bigger than that. I, there was no computers in those days, so I just typed it up on my, my mother's typewriter, you know, yeah. after we wrote it out in longhand, him half of it and me half of it. And after that, you know, we didn't put out another issue in this, for six months because we never thought we were going to. It wasn't wasn't the idea. And when I restarted, it was just because everyone kept asking for one and Dave was no longer involved. So ever since then, it's just been me. Yeah, and what whoever, I whoever I could get to join me. <laughs> what I saw is that you did another stimulators one, like a second, the big takeover, and then uh, you started all over again. You literally went back to issue one and said, "Okay, uh, we decided that there are." Again, I wrote this part down. Where did I have it? Something like you—you you said that there are some other bands worth coverage. I mean, it wasn't like <laughs> it wasn't like the scene is the greatest thing on earth. Um, I do have to. I, 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 <clears throat> I do have to ask you though. Know, you named three bands, the Bad Brains, have persisted. And actually, I wanted to mention, um, you know, some people know I, I work some of my time with the Rock Academy up here and I direct shows. And although it wasn't my show, we just did one for the Bad Brains, tribute show for the Bad Perfect. Brains, kids playing Bad Brains. 44 oh. years later. Yeah, 44 years later. And they are so, so, so into it. But I bet you, even if you ask the kids who know bad brains about stimulators and the mad they would be like who so i mean you back this band the stimulators you were crazy about them jack well um, oh, they were great <laughs> yeah and and i i went digging for stuff there's there's a a, a raw roir cassette yeah later LP. lineup the oldest story in the book i mean i don't mean to trash them too much but for me it was the earlier lineup that i was excited about and right. uh Oddly, they stole even worse his bass player, Nick Martin, who's still a close friend of mine. I saw him two nights ago, in fact. And that, to me, killed both bands because he wasn't on their level yet. He was a beginner like us. 
and he had to try and come up to speed and he was better than Sid Vicious or anything like that. But, you know, you couldn't have someone replace Glenn Matlock who wasn't just anywhere near in that league, let alone be a total beginner. And it was the same thing to me for the stimulators. They they just weren't as good. And there's only one single that documents that original lineup. They put out one single and there's a third song you can find because they didn't record anything else and no one wanted to sign him, even though they were selling out clubs all over town. Right. And you named yourself, you mentioned Bad Brains, you named yourself after a Bad Brains song. Yeah. Originally, um, we were a, more of a stimulators thing and we were calling ourselves the Cradle Robber, but I had a big falling out with the stimulators which has been patched over really well ever since. But uh, there was a lot of bad blood between me and them, uh, in part because they started taking over the printing of my magazine for a couple of very short four-page issues and started writing things in them that I hadn't. Oh, uh, There's more to the story, but that was a real deal-breaker for me, and so I changed the name to Big Takeover because we were really writing about the bad brains more than the stimulators by then anyway. The bad brains were just a eighth wonder of the world at that time. Yeah, you know what, Jack, take an extra moment on that, because um, I don't want to assume that everybody knows every band we're always talking about. And Bad Brains are at very best a cult act, you know, with minor sales historically. Can you just, for those who don't know, give people the three sentences of who Bad Brains were and what made them unique? Because they genuinely are slash were unique. Oh, gosh. I mean, they were from the other side of the Anacostia River in the worst area of Washington, D.C., and they were playing like uh, funk fusion kind of stuff. And they had this friend, Sid, who turned them on to the punk rock by playing them like the Dickies version of Black Sabbath's Paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> and they got so mind blown by that, that that they ended up forming a band in that style, covering Eater and the Saints and the Sex Pistols, more or less, and the Dickies covering black sabbath and they formed this absolutely extraordinary all-black punk rock band that just knocked everybody's socks off and more or less paved the way for henry rollins and ian mckay and the entire washington dc punk scene and the gigantic uh, cross-section of our new york second wave punk rock scene as well because we were so in love with them they would play new york even though they were from dc pretty much once a month twice a month and then eventually moved up here and just became kind of like the 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 elder statesmen as ira would call them of what yeah. we were all trying to do so and they were really really nice really friendly they twice they handed us their instruments after one of their gigs and said hey stick around these are our friends they're going to play two songs for you so that you go see them next week at max's kansas city i mean who does that that is very very cool you also and and the, the other thing that i think we have to mention because you mentioned the, you know, the that they were black which was a, a big thing to come on the punk scene as a black band but they could also just break that that hardcore punk down into reggae at the, the drop of a high eventually hat, right? eventually not until late 1980. okay i'd already been seeing them for like a year and a half before they ever did a reggae gig or ever started affecting the reggae oh. you know uh, clothes or lifestyle and and Jamaican accents, <laughs> <laughs> and then and then of course because every ex-punk actually moved becomes a hippie in the end. They uh, two of them moved up to the Woodstock area, and right. uh, I kind of got to know them up here, which might be part of the connection with the Rock Academy doing doing that show. Um, Jack, it did. You do make it sound like in 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 those early trouser presses, uh, trouser presses. Whoa, whoa! It's like me with my kids. You do make it sound in those early the big takeovers. <laughs> 
the the New York City scene, that hardcore scene, 1980, 81, when you started doing was amazing. Like like the energy jumps out. Second wave punk, I would say, because when you say hardcore, people think Agnostic Front Mm -hmm. and uh, Murphy's Law and uh, Youth of Today and these bands that played at the speed of sound in the minor threat mode. Whereas we were playing, you know, we were inspired by the Buzzcocks and the Damned and the Weirdos and the Avengers, these bands that played kind of like fast, but still quite mid-tempo punk rock in comparison. Or they were, especially their first Damned album. That was the tempos we were affecting. And we would cover like four of their songs in our sets. So it was a very different thing than what became called hardcore later because the, both the magazine and the band both formed in May of 1980. Right. You well mentioned, before hardcore. Yeah, okay. Well, and thank, thanks for that because, you know, history lessons, it's easy to look back when you weren't there and you fold different things into yeah, one. It's, we're it's, the donut generation. We're, we're the ones in the middle that gets completely left out yeah. of the New York punk rock histories. There's a, yeah, I can see why that would be the case. Now, you mentioned typing on your mother's typewriter. Believe me, that's a time on the tradition. I did the first dozen jammings on my mother's typewriter. <laughs> um, I am. Thanks, Ma. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. I still like the fact is it made so much noise. I would just be typing through the night and she'd get up every half hour and be like, when are you going to go to bed? And I'd be like, I've got to get an issue to the printers, mum. <laughs> and she'd be yeah. like, stop typing. You've got to go to school tomorrow. So I'd stop typing for like half an hour, do something else on the Zoom, figure she'd gone to sleep and start typing again. And eventually it would work, you know, and I'd get to type through the night. Um, but I, but you know, that, that brings, yeah, that brings us to this very DIY aspect of what we did uh, all three of us and i want to ask a little about how we each you know uh produced our zines uh your very first big takeover is like one page typed out on your mum's typewriter and pre- presumably mimeographed i mean summit public library one dime at a time we made a hundred that's pretty straightforward what Talk about, about for you ira hour, yours yeah. yours was more <laughs> ambitious from the beginning so how did uh, you no. go we mimeographed the first issue except for the cover which we had printed there was a chain of stores in the city called quick copy with k's mm-hmm. um i guess they were king's fans and they um <laughs> they did what was called paper plate lithography which was really cheap um they would do like 100 pages for like 100 copies for like three or four dollars mm. so we did the first issue on mimeograph paper um my father had a mimeograph machine because he was a lefty and I was a red diaper baby, and uh, that was the kind of thing that we 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 did leaflets all the time for one cause or another. And so he had one in his office, and he had a a, a, type, a, a really good but weird German typewriter that was not not the one we used actually. Karen did the typing because she was a much better typist than any of us. I almost flunked typing in school. Mm-hmm. Um, Hang on, you and, took typing uh, in school? Yeah, they, they used to teach typing in American grade huh? uh, junior high school, like huh? eighth or ninth grade. Um, and I was terrible at it. I could not touch type. I still can't. Um, I mean, I, I can type 60, 60 words a minute, but not, not touch typing. Um, and, uh, so yeah, we did the first one on mimeograph. The second one, we did the same thing. We mimeographed the inside pages and printed the front. Um, and then the third one, we printed the co- cover on blue card stock. And I think we, we got the inside pages printed, uh, on, 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 paper plate lithography and then after that we like shifted to a different printer and got it done on a much better quality stock but we were hand stapling them up through issue six mm-hmm. we were collating and stapling them on, on, a, on a, 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 a 
table in my parents' living room. Yeah, I was doing that through a dozen issues. Um, I'm sure Jack was doing that for a while as yeah. well. Don't remind me. That was fun. I used to get like all my my school friends come over. It was it was those collating yeah. parties, as they're called, which sound much naughtier than they were, but they were they were quite good fun. Just put the records on. Yeah, but but stapling does the base of your palm in really badly. You're like going yeah. like this the whole time, and it's like bang, bang, bang. It's like being a drummer. <laughs> we had the worst of both worlds then. Yeah, really. <laughs> well, one probably helped you for the other, Jack. Um, so what about um, sales? I mean, I didn't even ask, did you, but Jack, did you give away that first one sheet? I mean, you couldn't really charge for a one sheet of paper, could you? You're, you're not getting into the depth of what a pile of garbage that we were putting out there for a few years because we were just kids. And then I was in college, even when I was out of high school, I didn't have tons of time or anything. But uh, we gave away the first 11 issues. And the only reason we started charging a quarter, which was probably overpriced on issue 12, was because people would get, they would take five from me. And I'd say, what are you going to do with the other four? And they would claim they'd give them to some friends. And not only did they not do that, but they wouldn't even read the one ostensibly for themselves, right? So I just learned that if I charged them a quarter, they'd actually get one and actually read it. Right. But I, I wasn't trying to make money or even make back our costs. Like like uh, some people I know, I found myself a Xerox machine that I had access to for a while. So it never occurred to me to charge. I, I wasn't trying to rip anybody off, except right. for maybe the poor company that employed me. Sorry. I mean, when that. you're saying, but when you're saying they weren't <clears throat> they weren't any good. I mean, listen, Ira on his um, trouser press website literally puts under issue one well we had to start somewhere i mean the fan the fanzine editor apologizing is just part of the no man the trouser press was like the new york times compared to <laughs> you know you know tony i listen i listened to your to, to your current uh, uh episode and you know they talked about the um the typical apology for being late the fanzine mm -hmm. editors do i don't believe we ever did that we we stuck to it once we decided that we were going to have a schedule which took us a, a couple of weeks um we started out as a bi-monthly. We stuck to it. I mean, come it's hell or a, high water. It's amazing. You put out 96 issues in just over a decade. Like a little, uh, no, more exactly. than Exactly. It was actually 95 because the, there was a double issue in there. Wow. 92 and 93 was a double issue. So 95, we did it. And plus, we actually also did a best of issue uh, and a couple of, of side printings. And we put out another magazine at the same time, a collector's newspaper. Um but yeah, we did 95 issues in exactly 10 years, and then we went out of business. Yeah. I mean, it's it's truly phenomenal. You you approach this from a very different mindset than most of us who did zines. You always said, we're going to be bi-monthly. We're going to be quarterly. And then life got in the way, and we just ended up constantly apologizing. Yeah, you're shaking your head. You were, you were serious. <laughs> yeah, no, we, I, I, was, I, I, I that's just the kind of mindset I have. I mean, I like if, if I say it's going to come out in two months, it's going to come out in two months. Right. Yeah, I have to do that, or my advertisers will abandon me, and fair, fair, fairly so. Well, let's let's bring that a little bit up to speed. You're at what issue now after 42 years, Jack? I still haven't caught up to Ira yet. I'm up, <laughs> I'm up to issue 93, and it's been four and a third decades. Yeah, but Jack, you've probably done three times as many pages as we did a total. I don't know. Our let's... biggest issue was like 80, 80 or 80 pages, or something like that. Um, Your normal issue is 300. Uh, not anymore, but for a while there, these what days is, were about 180. Yeah, what did what, what did you peek at with that with that, Jack? 
uh, over 300 and i didn't realize that until i sold some back issues recently and i was like god these things are heavy yes they cost a lot to ship yeah especially with postal <laughs> costs going up consistently oh all right gosh. it just sounds like well, we... you said we were music obsessives and you were not wrong i always <laughs> felt jack um i've always felt looking through the big takeover um that you are trying to write about everything that has occurred since the last issue and by everything i mean like everything that has occurred in the world of music that you are into every release every concert every like like the interviews are always super long and, and largely unedited and when i went back to these well, I didn't go back to them. You shared your very earliest issues. You've kind of always been that way. It looks like you were you were like, here's the other bands on the New York scene. Then you tried to name like every single band on the New York scene. It's because I'm still 15, 16 years old and I don't know anything and I need the printed word to help me. We bought that book by Caroline Kuhn, 1988. And it was principally about the Sex Pistols and Stranglers and Clash and people like that and bands we knew already. And then she would just throw in like one word mentions of about 60 other bands like the Cortinas or something mm -hmm. like that, or um, uh, Ultravox or something like that. And we'd be like, okay, now we need to find if they have any records. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because it was that difficult in the days before the internet. And you couldn't just hear the records on any radio station because nobody was playing them. But if you're trying to do a crash course, it's really helpful if people even point you in the slightest way at all to say, this might be something else you might want to chase down on your own. And then nine or 10 of us in Summit and the friends that we made in New York, we were like detectives. My my friend like uh, um, my friend in New York would play me a Misfits single. They weren't getting any press anywhere. I had no way of knowing they were going to be this gigantic thing someday. But we bought it because right. we thought it was great. And that's all we wanted. We wanted every great record that would really blow our socks off. And any place that would point us in that direction. Uh, I mean, like uh, Ira mentioned a whole bunch of people that were integral to Trouser Press. And, you know, every time I meet them, there's like a little 16-year-old in me that goes like, God, I used to know you just as a byline, but I read mm -hmm. every word of yours like it was the Dead Sea Scrolls. So, and, and, and yeah, which is which is so cool. And the, f the fact is that even though Trouser Press was, I mean, you know, some of those early, uh, some of those early issues, there's a lot of prog in there, uh, Ira. You know, there, there is a lot of prog because that's mm -hmm. what was that's what was happening. But but for you, Jack, it still was an alternative. So although you got immersed in the New York like second wave of punk, I think you called it. But um, even though you got immersed in that, you were able to before beforehand go, well, Trouser Press is an alternative because it's a small publication writing about music and I love music. Well, they would run interviews with people like the Undertones or whatever. You weren't going to read about them in a you know, big, long interview in Rolling Stone. So mm -hmm. other than the British press, it was the only time I'd heard them speak, let alone want to know what they were about. You know, once you get to be a gigantic fan of a band, you want to know more about them if you're like me. And interviews and reviews are really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about that. What was your, the first interview each of you each of you had and how did it go? First interview we did for Trouser Press was with Moogie Klingman, who was a sideman for Todd Rundgren for a while, and then had a studio called Secret Sound in the West Twenties. And I'm not sure he had a he, he did a solo record, and Dave and Karen and I all interviewed him together. We didn't know any different. Like we went, you know, like none of us thought we were any going to be able to do this, so we just went together. And I don't know how we did it, but like it, it ran in, in an early issue. Um, that was the first one. It was pretty. He was, he was very nice and very easy to talk to. So it wasn't anything. It was a good experience. 
Um, you know, I, I can't remember who the second one was. I'd have to look that one up. What about you, Jack? I didn't actually print an interview until issue 23, seven years. Because, <laughs> you know, when you're, again, when you're a four-page or a 10-page or even 22-page fanzine just doing reviews and, and photos and show show postings, there's no room for that, especially if you want to do like a Playboy-sized interview, which was the kind I liked. So I, I started doing interviews for the East Village Eye in 1983 instead, mm. which was like a village voice competitor, a local culture paper. And for them, I interviewed the replacements when they only had like, you know, two records out. And I think Salem 66 might have been my first interview, actually, because I did it for them. And I was, you know, still only 21 years old. So I don't think I was a particularly good interviewer, but I loved the band and knew their influences. And they were covering Wire at that time. So we had stuff to talk about. And then the first big takeover interview in 87 was a two and a half hour spectacular with Steve Diggle from the broken up Buzzcocks, which ah. was done, done over about six pints in a pub in Manchester. Yeah, your, <laughs> you know, your favorite band, I believe, and very close to being mine. They're my bandmate, my best mate, and the, the Dear Boys are his favorite band. And I covered two yeah. of their songs for my other project hudson palace so i can definitely bond and one of those was the steve diggle song so i can right. absolutely i can absolutely 100 bond over that all right best interview worst interview i always say my worst interview was john lyden but it wasn't really because he was a complete twat to me when we did it but like he actually gave a really good interview like i i i, I published a, a, some three anthologies of my work in the last couple of years uh, under the Trouser Press Books imprint. And, and I went back and, and, and included a lot of just unedited interviews just for the sake of, of sharing what you know was in my archive that no one had ever read. I mean, it was it was an article for Newsday when I worked there. And you know, I probably used, you know, 500 words of quotes in a 90, in a 40-minute interview. And it's a really good interview, but he was so obnoxious to me. I couldn't believe it. The other one was was Hugh Cornwall of the Stranglers, who insulted my female photographer, who I happened to be married to at the time, really rudely for absolutely no reason while we were doing the interview. And he kept spitting into a coffee cup while we were talking, which I didn't appreciate at all. Um, best interview, I don't know, some some tie between Elvis Costello, Pete Townsend, uh, uh, Rick Nielsen, uh, Kirsty McCall, I don't know, a lot of great ones. Um you mentioned, yeah, some really good wordsmiths there for your best interviews. Interesting about that, because again, Jack, I had so much fun going through these like scrawls of your early issues. <laughs> you uh, were did not shy away from just like scribbling in addition to the type, which of course is very fancy, uh, when you wanted to slag somebody off. And you absolutely slagged off the Stranglers in one of your first zines. You know, they insisted they wouldn't continue a show at Irving Plaza in 1980, I think it was, until some girl got up on the stage and took her shirt off and danced. And even as a teenager from the suburbs, I thought punk rock appealed to me in part because we were past that garbage. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the bands had girls in them, which I thought was incredibly refreshing in the late 70s because there mm -hmm. wasn't so in the normal rock I'd seen my whole life. Uh, blacks, gays, Asians, you know, um, all kinds of different people, uh, Jane County instead of Wayne County, you know, these were, mm -hmm. this is normal now, but if you grew up in the suburbs, like I did in the seventies, this all seemed like, you know, stunning, absolutely mind boggling and flabbergasting, you know? So to be doing that in 1980, after five years of punk, I just like, they deserve that kicking and I'll stand by that. Yep. 
I don't I don't dispute that either because uh in Britain they were kind of seen as interlopers. <clears throat> um well their music was incredible. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. That's that's the that, problem. If that if they, if that was their attitude, you know, and I found out soon thereafter that they you know had girls dancing on stage with them in England too and it was kind of a thing they did. So if anything I went easy on them. Right. You did. <laughs> I made F maybe you, basically <laughs> maybe it was always it was always problematic in the uk there were so few original punk bands and a lot of people sort of did jump on it um but that would be that would be a side discussion but what were your best and worst then uh Jack? oh sorry i was so captivated by iris i forgot i hadn't answered the question i, I would like to have interviewed a lot of the people i already did i mean he he's the one who turned me on to the move and i think the first time i ever met him i thanked him so profusely for that <laughs> I mean, where would I read about the move in any publication in America, speaking of bands that had no hits in America, mm -hmm. were gigantic in England. They were just so incredible. But I, I'd say mine were probably, my favorite interview ever was Eric Idle. Mm -hmm. It's one of my proudest moments as a publisher because I, I made him laugh after <laughs> 30 years of him, you know, making me bust out in paroxysms of giggles, right? That uh, I, think, I think you would make him laugh too, just because you're a funny guy. And it's easy to end up riffing with him on absurd one-liners. If you you're complimenting which of us, both of us, or both of you? Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. Thank you. You guys are both <laughs> have you. a good sense of humor, and that's all that's required, basically, to find yourself trading absurd one-liners with this guy because it's what what he eats for breakfast. Mm -hmm. But it was just you know we talked a lot about the Ruddles and Rutland Weekend Television, the Goon Shows, and it was just illuminating and fascinating. But. I guess my favorite uh, music people would be Ray Davies because he kept telling the publicist he needed more time. Mm -hmm. It came to take him to MTV. So it was like, I've, I was like, this guy is always dealing with people trying to stir up garbage with him and his brother. I'm asking him about Wicked Annabella mm -hmm. and, you know, and all of his great songs he wrote that no one asks him about because I think they're incredible. I still feel very passionate about the, the 60s records of the Kinks and I, he got that. Yeah, and, I think that's it, something. I think that's something really important that, about why fanzines can can succeed. Because when I I look back, I was just talking about this. I wanted, Ira, you mentioned uh, about your publishing company. I'm going to yeah. uh, give you a chance to talk more about that. But uh, I, you know, I just went back to this Keith Richards interview, and it was meant to be 20 minutes, and uh, I ended up staying at his place for about three hours. And he was going off to record Steel Wheels the next day. It was his last day before the Stones reformed, and. Uh, you know, he, I obviously had some kind of rapport then, but it got me talking to my girlfriend about interviewing Pete Townsend when I was 14. And I always thought the interview was terrible because I asked him such obvious questions. And I recently went back to the transcripts and I'd like to make that, put that on my Substack soon. And I actually realized it's a really good interview because we're not coming in with any cynicism. I'm genuinely like, you know, why did you smash, I don't know, you know, pop art tell me about pop art but i'm also mm -hmm. coming to it from don't worry i have the records you know i know what i'm talking about like i just want to hear you talk about it and again mm -hmm. he gave us we showed up about an hour and a half late because yeah we were 14 had to get across london <laughs> and he still he still gave <laughs> he still gave us an hour um, also we turned up with four of us um uh which was probably hilarious for pete but like four 14 year olds showing up but uh you know i i do think that's something that's really important that there's a reason that sometimes the the, the, the rock star will say you know what hold my calls can i can i hold that next interview because i'm enjoying this because this person knows my career and wants to ask me about it and i think it's really important to get that point across
And even Pete Townsend, just to evoke him again, I heard him complain once that he had written like 200 songs and the radio only played like 15 of them, which is, you know, good by most people. But I mean, he wrote a lot of other absolutely fabulous songs. It would be nice if people could hear them. So mm-hmm. even the gigantic rock star with tons of airplay has been reduced to this tiny corner of his work. And also mm-hmm. true of like, you know, uh, what songs he gets asked about when he's interviewed as well. So uh, the one time I met him, like we were talking about like Ar- Armenia City in the Sky, which he didn't mm-hmm. even write because he was sharing the stage with Bob Mould, whose band Sugar had just recorded a version. Like some of us get it that you have a lot more songs that are just absolutely amazing. I certainly do. That's not been I, a problem. What was your worst interview, Jack? Do you oh, have one? God, I didn't answer that either. Sorry. <laughs> really we're, we're getting on either. in years. It's okay. Um, well, my worst interview, I didn't print because it was Ned's Atomic Dustbin, and they gave me one of the bass players who had nothing to say. <laughs> so I just basically said, your, your, your publicist really hates me sending you, right? But, uh, um, actually, I have a similar experience to Ira. My worst interview is one of my best ones because I spent my entire time interviewing Lee Mavers of The Laws uh, arguing with him about his excuses for why he hated his own album. Mm-hmm. And he was he was blaming the management, and I was saying that's a cop-out. You know, you can fire your manager. He's like, the manager works for the record company. I said, doubly so, you should fire him. And why they recorded the record like six times, and he kept you know saying he didn't like it after saying he did. And it was this gigantic brawl, basically, with an <laughs> album and a, a, a singer-slash-songwriter that I fiercely admired. But I just was tired of hearing the same interview from him over and over. And I felt someone should challenge him. And that was really unlike me. I don't I don't usually have to do that because most bands aren't that well known and are perfectly happy to explain themselves. I think mm. what I think what we're getting at there is that an uncomfortable interview can actually be a very good interview because that's what I got from both those experiences, John Lydon mm-hmm. and Lee Mavers, that it's mm-hmm. uncomfortable. But when you look back on it, you go, that was worth being uncomfortable for. Mm-hmm. Well, I wanted to know. Yeah. And these were, I think in retrospect, the reason he never made another album makes that interview look pretty good. Yeah. It's uh, quite, it's quite the story the Lee Mavers one with the Lars. Yeah, he's, dis- he's become this mystery and this, this, you know, 20,000 copy magazine was the only one who was willing to go there with him. And that doesn't make me any great hero. It's just, this my natural inclination to want to know. Well, you actually did the perfect segue because I know we're going to get tight on time and we are getting tight on time. Uh, I wanted to ask about print runs. Twenty thousand is not small. Is that where you're at now? Is that where you were at? No, you know, that was the that was when the internet came along. <laughs> you mean you were peaking at that point? Well, actually, when we did the Lee Mavers interview, it would have been about twelve thousand or ten thousand. And then when the internet came along, we got up to about thirty. Because mm-hmm. now it was the same thing. You know, the internet changed everything. Like if you wanted to hear Ultravox now, you can hear the whole catalog. Of course. In 1978, when I read. Caroline Kuhn's book, it took me a month to be able to find a single one of their records that somebody could play for me. So they just were this name, this legend, mm-hmm. I guess, of this band that was, for all I knew, they sounded like the freaking uh, Buzzcocks. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd never heard them and they, I'd never even seen a description of them, let alone that they were so synthesizer based. Right. So it was the same. It was the same thing for us. When the internet came along, all these people found out about our magazine. And if uh, Trouser Press had their own you know, a website and people could actually read reviews. I wrote for it there. More people read that than they read my own magazine. So I thought you were going to say when the internet came along, you know, it kind of killed the need for people to buy the magazine. That's not, not at first. Wow. Okay. So old, old habits died hard for people and they were still into the print. 
Okay. So what did you, where, where are you at right now? Do you, and is it twice a year, Jack? It's been twice a year since 83. Right. Uh, it was four times a year until then, which is why after 43 years, we're, we're on issue 93 instead sure. of 86. And, and can I ask what you sell now? I sell about 9,000, right. which is a pittance compared to where we were for a while, but still good enough to do. Yeah. And you've got your, you know, after all that time, you have the distribution network uh, sorted. Uh, Ira, how, where, where did you peak? Um, Sales around 60,000. Wow. Um, we were printing more than that for a while, but we weren't selling a lot of them because we were on newsstand distribution and it was a very low sell through, like maybe a 25 or 30% mm. sell through. So we were hoping a lot of the magazines. Yeah. I we, had, we, had, we had about, we had about 12,000 subscribers as kind of like our base, which was really good. Were you in a position you could pay your writers? Yeah, we always paid writers, just not much. Right. Okay. We, we once paid Lester, Lester Bangs at twice our going rate. That was a hundred dollars for a feature. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I got some, I got Tony Parsons to write for jamming for, for jamming's rate. You can do, you can do that. I didn't realize 50, 60,000 is great. I mean, jamming got up to 30 at its peak 30, maybe 35, wow. but that, that news agent thing was definitely a double edged sword. You know, it was yeah. like, yeah, we're in the news agents. And then, and then realizing that you're lucky to sell 50% of what you put out. It's like, oh, that's not how I ran this beforehand. I yeah, used to right. bank on selling pretty much every copy. Right. And right. I never really got through that. So after, um, Ira, I'm going to let you uh, just take over for a few minutes because I'm aware you have to go. Um, you stopped uh, the the uh, trouser press many many years ago, but you still do trouser press. Explain what's what have you done in those interim forty five to fifty years? Well, the <laughs> God, magazine ceased. No, not quite. The magazine ceased publication in nineteen eighty four, um, and then we did a five trouser press record guidebooks. Um, and when the last one came out in in the nineties, um, it it left out all, all the material that had gone into the previous books. And so I created a website in order to put that material online so that people who bought the new book could have all the back material to go with it. Um, and that evolved uh, through a couple of iterations and most recently into a more robust kind of online magazine. Um, we post features, we have a, a message board, a uh, bunch of you know videos, things like that. Um, we don't publish a lot of articles, but, you know, a few here and there. Um, and then about three years ago, I started Trouser Rest Books Up as a going concern, and we've published 11 books already. Um, and I'm currently preparing a Trouser Press 50th anniversary or 50th birthday best of book to come out in March of next year. So there's a Trouser Press Books website. There's a Trouser Press website. Um, and we're doing lots of good stuff. So I, I urge people to check it out, as the kids say. And the links will absolutely all be here. The, the, I, I really, um, just, just, just sell us a couple of your books. A couple of the books have come out because I'm really impressed with what you're doing. I think it's still the fanzine ethic. It's just, it's books. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree. I mean, you know, I, it's a, it's a different, um, business model because you can't simply publish anything you want to. I mean, the amount of work that goes into getting a book into in, into circulation is uh, substantially greater than putting out a magazine. So, um, you know, there's a, the tools are great, but it's a lot of hard work. So I'm only able to do, we did four last year. We have five in the queue for next year uh, and two for the year after that. And that's without the pitches that I'm getting every day. So I'm not sure how, I'm not sure where it's going to go from here, but, you know, I'm having a good time doing it and I'm, I'm getting, you know, doing books with friends and, you know, people who are great writers and getting interesting topics out into the marketplace.
Yeah, you 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 are doing good with that, and I I I've seen a lot of people move into that uh, that world. I'm very hesitant to do it, but for all the reasons you mm -hmm. stated, it's uh, mm -hmm. it seems to be extraordinarily hard work. Uh, Jack, you you are not limited, never have been limited to just the big takeover as a as a magazine. What else do you have going on? Well, I have a wife and two children in middle school and high school, so the thought of even embarking on writing a book sounds to me like the worst form of hell. <laughs> so I, I can really concur with what uh, Ira just said. It just sounds like uh, you have to just do that and nothing else for like a year. And I I don't have time to do that at all. But uh, I, I, used, I used to write for a lot of magazines. I, I did stuff for like a later cream and um, uh, well, Treasure Press Guide books and um, Village Voice and but, uh, Spin and things like that. But mostly I just do the big takeover in my own Radio a, show. But you have a radio show with it, don't yeah, you? Yeah, that that's weekly, every Monday. Uh, and uh, yeah, I was trying to give you the chance to to, to promote right, it. Well, I had to. You're so you're such a fanzine writer. You didn't, you didn't jump I mean, on that. I I really like my radio show because I can play anything I want, and I mix stuff from the 1920s to the present. Right. You know where I kind of mix it like half new stuff and half old stuff, or slightly more new stuff than that, and just keep trying to put that out there that there's always great things happening. You don't have to take this attitude that it all happened when you were a kid, no. like so many people do, or there's nothing happening in music now and it's all boring. And, you know, if you're really, really trying to find good stuff, you will, because there's always someone with a great attitude and a little bit of talent and can pour that into some really great songs and hopefully get them recorded now. Um, I, I concur with that. And maybe is a really good place to uh, leave this with thanks for your time and your contributions to the culture over the years and for schooling some of us on how, how it sort of worked out in New York, in the New York area. Um, you know, all three of us are still doing stuff. We're, uh, we're all obviously getting up there in age. And I think one thing that has really changed is, is you know, there doesn't seem to be ageism around rock music, around music. And and the sense is that you know for for me it feels that if you're enthusiastic your enthusiasm is carries carries you through you know you don't oh, yeah. you don't age out I think that's what I'm getting at mm -hmm. yeah I agree lovely talking to you Tony yeah nice to see you Jack yeah you're off too and, and as a as a I just want to say you're not uh, I didn't say the wrong thing there you let us know that being uh, civic minded and having a life you are off to a uh, a local uh, community, community board meeting. meeting. There you go. Yep. I've been been in those, and that's what we do <laughs> as we get older. We move on from the fanzines to the community boards and the school boards. Indeed. Thank you, Indeed. thank you, Ira. Right, Good cheers. luck with it all. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. bye. Hats off to Ira. He that's, really is a hero of mine. You know, I think we've run we've run the conversation through. This is this this has been good. There's obviously just like so much, so 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 much you can you can talk about. The fact is, you know, I'm talking to two people who who together have done. Uh, you know, I'm trying to just do the math, but it's about 90 years worth of self-publishing in uh, in around the New York music scene. That's pretty phenomenal <laughs> when you think of it. It really uh, is. It is. It is a body of work, and I can be proud of effort, I think. Mm -hmm. now, you can't always be telling people how great your work is, but you can tell them that you worked really hard on it and you believed in it, I think. And I think that that's a pretty good place to leave the conversation. Uh, Jack and I stayed on the call just a moment or two longer, just catching up a little bit. As you can tell, we all knew each other reasonably well, maybe maybe more so than when I've done some uh, previous podcasts. But really, I do not get to see either of those two at all. And I really enjoyed hearing of their past because... While Trouser Press always was um, something semi-esteemed, I mean, I kind of knew about it when I was 
in Britain, even when I was probably starting off or first getting serious about jamming, uh, I genuinely didn't know about uh, a lot of Jack's background until we decided to do this particular interview. And, you know, I think the spirit clearly is still with them both. The fact that, uh, you know, Ira's engaged in, in publishing some books now. Jack is still doing the big takeover after all these years, twice a year, no longer at 300 pages, just down to, you know, 100 and something these days. It's a little Bible of indiedom. Um, it's truly wonderful. I do trust you're going to find your way to it uh, when I show you the links or provide the links in show notes. And again, and you know, not meaning to labor the point, but uh, we're here for sort of writing and music and culture. Please, 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 if you're halfway interested in this, if you're halfway interested in anything I've ever written, head on over tonyfletcher.substack.com. Please subscribe. There's a lot of content there. There's a lot I think you would enjoy. And yeah, I'll leave that one at that. Just to talk a little bit about people's uh, actual musical chops, you know, Jack mentioned playing in a band. In case you didn't hear it, it, the band was called Even Worse. And he also mentioned a group called The Mad, who he, he, who he loved, who I see no music by whatsoever on Spotify, and there's barely anything by Even Worse. So fortunately, I came across a cassette. I'd only just been looking at a Bad Brains cassette release I had on the ROIR label that was out of New York, did a bunch of great releases in the early 80s and on through and I came across one called New York Thrash and it opens with The Mad and a track called I Hate Music which is really really sharp and even worse are on there as well with a couple of tracks um, not sure the stimulators are but Bad Brains are on there as well so you can see Bad Brains ended up with that New York connection just like Jack was mentioning Jack went on to play in a group called Springhouse who I uh, knew and loved very well put on a couple of gigs by them actually back in the day more of a 90s band uh, more poppy uh, really really good group if you want to go look them up and Ira used to play in what I recall was a covers band made up of music journalists all right so uh, this is the end of a uh, full year of doing the fanzine podcast um, as a fanzine podcast I came back in January January 20th with a history of British zines. That was actually talking to Hamish and Ironside and Gavin Hogg about their book. We peaked at paper. We did an episode archiving a city zine scene with Alan Ryder and Graham Burnett about uh, books about the Coventry scene and the South End scene, both like histories of their fanzines. We had an episode with Tony D of Ripped and Torn, with Mike Dibbo of Toxic Graffiti. We had the very popular Mickey Berenyi and Claire Wad episode. Uh, Alphabet Soup and Kavach was their scenes, but they were also known, Mickey, for being in Lush, Claire Wad for Sarah Records. Also very, very popular was the one with James Brown from Attack on Bazag, of course went on to Loaded and uh, recently wrote a great book as well called Animal House and Mark Hodkinson of Untermensch who's a fantastic guy and ran his own um, his own publishing press for quite a number of years uh, called Pomona um, followed that up with Confessions of an Ex-Zine Editor with Alison B talking about her meter zine which is uh, you know that's what it is because it's obviously a fanzine and Jane Appleby who's done a whole bunch of scenes, zines we had um, a whole episode on the mod zines scene with Eddie Piller, the epic Eddie Piller, who's just had his book out called Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances. We had um, Bobby Bluebell on with Alistair Mackay, and we talked uh, the, uh, postcard from post-punk pop 
Scotland on that episode. And the one before this was the um, the one that we mentioned during this episode. What was the first ever fanzine which, for which we had Hamish Ironside back and Rob Hansen, who's a historian of sci-fi zines and helped answer that question. It's been a really good year. I'm glad I revived this podcast uh, beyond just having it be about my fanzine jamming. I'm really glad to be doing it once a month. I'm really glad that, that at the end of the year here, we got across the pond, so to speak. Um, even though I've been, I live in the States all along, I'm actually talking to people in the same time zone. That will continue in the new year. There's going to be so many great episodes coming up. I want to wish you all a happy new year. Thank you for listening along. Uh, thank you for being a part of this. And, um, you know, if you're listening in the future and you're like, hey, it's not new year soon, well, I'll tell you what, it will be soon enough. Well, I will see you on the other side. Um, we're generally dropping these episodes right around the middle of the month, usually on a Wednesday or Thursday. So please subscribe. That way it'll land in your inbox. And, um, you know, a like and a review is also great. Visiting the Substack, subscribing there is great. Main thing is stay involved, stay active. And if somebody uh, asks to sell you a zine, say yes. <laughs>